Good morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, whether electronic or paper, please open them to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, and find verse 4, and follow with me if you can as we read our passage for today. <coughs> 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Have you ever been sick of God's plan for your life? Have you ever told him that you've had it? That you didn't sign up for this and as far as you're concerned, he can give his plan for you to someone else because you've had enough of it? Have you ever agreed with Moses and Jonah and Elijah and Jeremiah and the psalmists and, that, and a host of other people we find in the Bible that if he can't come up with a better plan than the one you're facing that you want no part of it? That's about how I felt on Thursday afternoon. I was sick of being unemployed, sick of unexpected home repairs, sick of dealing with people problems that I couldn't solve, and looking at a sermon that I was basically going to have to rewrite from scratch, and I felt like I'd had enough. I told God I had no interest in preaching a sermon about living stones and royal priesthoods and all that stuff, which at that moment felt totally remote and unreal. And as far as I was concerned, he could have Kenny preach it, since Kenny could make more progress writing a sermon in 15 minutes than I could do in a month. And I felt as if God was there, quietly listening to me vent, almost saying, are you done now? And it was as if he said, Ralph, you know that's not what's going to happen. I've chosen you for this, not Kenny, and it's not your call whether you preach, but mine. I placed you here for a purpose, to glorify me, and you're not excused from that purpose just because you don't like the way I've ordered your life as of late. Gradually, my rebellion subsided, for I knew God was right. Indeed, that's what he had been telling me all along as I was studying this passage. God has put me in this place to stand before you to fulfill this role as a preacher of his word for the purpose of glorifying him, and it really doesn't matter how I look at myself or how I look to myself, or to anyone else. And as it is with me, so it is with all of us. 
Peter's message to us is God has a place for us. He has roles for us. God has purposes for us, and no one is too needy to enter into what God has for us. For me, that wasn't news I wanted to hear. But Peter intends for it to be good news, and I hope that you will find it such. But before we plunge into this passage, let's pray together that God would help us to properly appreciate what the passage has to teach us. So let's pray. Father, as we approach your plan and your purposes, as Peter tells us about here, I know that we come from a lot of different perspectives. Some of us have struggled. Some of us have enjoyed the places where we're at. Some of us are confused. And some of us feel like we see clearly. Whatever it is, Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes to the good that you have for us, to the purposes that you've created us specifically to fulfill, that you would help us to see what a wonderful calling we have in Jesus and that we would joyfully enter into it and live it out in the way that you intended for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, God has a place for us. Our passage begins with the phrase, as you come to him. We are free to come to our Lord. Indeed, we are invited. Though we are exiles, as Peter told us at the beginning of the letter, we are urged to come to seek that pure spiritual milk that is promised to us in the passage that Eric preached on last week. And as we come, we are being built into a spiritual house. This house that is the house that Jesus was talking about when he told his disciples in John 14, 1 and 2, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. There are places for all of us in the house of our Father. And Jesus is preparing a place for each of us that we may be there with him. In this house, Jesus is the cornerstone, the anchor of the foundation around which the entire house is being built. Whoever believes in him will be anchored to him and will not be moved. He is the secure foundation like the one described in the parable Jesus told in Luke 6:47, where he said, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. The spiritual house has its foundation on the rock, who is the living stone, who is Jesus. And we too are being built like living stones onto this foundation and we will be secure because he is secure. Not only are we being united with Jesus, we are being united with each other. We are not a single brick sitting on a foundation. That would be rather useless. Rather, we are being built up together into a spiritual house. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are not scattered pieces of building material, nor are we solitary rocks attached to a foundation, but we are built together with other believers through time and space into a house that has as its cornerstone Jesus, with the apostles being the surrounding stones in the foundation. And we are not the architects of this house either. It's not being built to our design or specification, but it was built long before. The foundation was laid from the beginning of the church in the apostles, and we are not free to add or remove rooms or build or tear down walls. This house is a temple, which is to say it's a dwelling place for God. He lives here. In Revelation 21, 1 through 4, we read what that means. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In this spiritual house, where God dwells, he himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There shall no longer be any death or any kind of sorrow and pain, for all that is past and gone. And it will be beautiful, like a bride adorned for her husband. God has prepared a place for us, a secure, stable, beautiful place where we shall be bound together with Jesus and his people. And God himself will care for us and joy will be there. Have you had a hint of that beauty in your life? Or maybe are you only seeing scaffolding? You look around and you see building material. None of it's been erected into anything beautiful, but there's scaffolding and foundation molds and other stuff. And you're looking around your life and saying, well, something's under construction here, but I'm sure not seeing anything that looks good to me. It's hard to trust God sometimes when you're in a house that's being built, when it's not yet finished, you don't yet know. Maybe your worship showed you a little bit. Maybe it reminded us a little bit. I hope it did. We sang some wonderful hymns and songs there about what God's doing. Did any of that penetrate? Did it remind you of where he is and say, yes, there's a resonance in your heart that said, uh-huh, I like this. I want this. I'm glad for it. You know, it wasn't there for me on Thursday, that's for sure. <laughs> I wasn't seeing any of that glory and that hope. I was seeing the scaffolding and I was tired of it. I didn't like it. The noise of construction, the pile drivers and all the rest of that stuff, all the stuff that God was doing to build me and shape me and form me. Uh-uh, I didn't want any of it. I'd add it. But you know something? He wants us to lift up our eyes and to see beyond that and to recognize that the house that he is building is spectacular. And tough though it may be at times, and it will be tough, he is building something truly beautiful. And we will be glad for our place in it when that time comes. And in this place, God has a role for us. 
We're not just hangers-on, people who drift in, out, in and out, who float aimlessly through space. And that's a good thing, too, because it's hard to feel like you have a place, that you belong in some place if you don't have a role, some purpose for being there. When I was doing graduate school at UCLA, I would sometimes go over to Beverly Hills and simply walk the streets to see what was happening there. One day I went into a jewelry store to see what it was like, and I knew in a few moments that I really didn't belong there. The staff was, shall we say, dressed in their dark suits, standing behind the counters, and I was quite sure that the cheapest thing in any of those counters was something I couldn't have paid for with more than a month's worth of my own salary. I couldn't pretend to be interested in buying anything they had, and small talk was clearly not an option. So after becoming increasingly uncomfortable, I left because I didn't have a role there. There wasn't a place for me. But in God's spiritual house, we have roles. We have places, several of them. In verse 5, we read that we are a holy priesthood. In verse 9, we read further that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. All of these say that we belong, that our presence matters to God. They say it redundantly and with emphasis. There is no doubt that this is our place, that we have a role, and this is where he wants us to be. So by saying that we are a holy priesthood and a holy nation, God is emphasizing our holiness. First thing that this means is that we are set apart for him. He has not allowed us to be long to the world at large, that we belong to him. And so we are set apart. And secondly, and in associate with that, is that we are to be like him. We are to be fit for his possession, which means we are to be clean. We are to be pure, and we are to be good, with no trace of any evil or filth. And God also says twice that we are a priesthood. This is a role of great honor. For the priests alone in Jewish society were allowed to approach God with the offerings of the people. The priests performed the tasks that God had given them to cover over the sins of the people, to shield them from his wrath, and to secure his forgiveness for their sins. And not just anyone could do this, but only those who had been appointed to the task. Number 16 tells a story of how when 250 Levites tried to take on themselves the offering of incense before the Lord, the fire of the Lord came out from the altar and destroyed them. When the Israelites objected, and they blamed Moses and Aaron for these deaths, God sent a plague among them that was only halted when Aaron, the appointed high priest, went out with incense into the Israelite community, and as Numbers 16, 47, and 48 recounts, he put on the incense and made atonement for the people, and he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. Sometimes priests stand between people and God in a way that... Is, will save their lives that could do nothing less than rescue them from disaster. But it has to be done right by the right people. And we are it. We are chosen for that role. And the priests also presented to God offerings that were expressions by the people of thanksgiving for the blessings God had given them. There were fellowship offerings, offerings of the harvest, and vows made and kept 
all of which communicated the gratitude that God's people had for the good that he had poured out into their lives. Psalm 50 expresses God's appreciation for these offerings as he tells his people, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. And further in the same psalm it reads, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. So, when the relationship between God and his people was broken by sin, the priests performed the tasks needed to restore the relationship. And when the relationship between God and his people was healthy, the priests performed the tasks that would communicate the people's gratitude for the blessings that they had received from God. Both jobs, both tasks, were an essential part in the life of God's people, and the priests were greatly honored as a result. Being a royal priesthood is something new, however. Kings didn't typically do the work of priests, and when King Uzziah got a little too full of himself and tried to burn incense before God, he was struck with leprosy as a result. However, as the book of Hebrews reminds us, there is one priest in the Old Testament who was also a king, namely Melchizedek, who was both high priest and king of Salem in the time of um, Abraham. This king priest is mentioned in Psalm 110, where the Lord declares to someone else, whom David calls my Lord, that he will be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus hints in Mark 12 that he's the person David was calling my Lord, and the book of Hebrews draws a logical conclusion that Jesus is the king priest to whom David was referring and calls him our great high priest. So if we are a priesthood, and Jesus, who is our great high priest, is also a king, then it makes sense that we would be a royal priesthood under Jesus, thus having an even greater honor than the Jewish priests had had up to that time. Beyond being a holy and a royal priesthood, we are also a holy nation, a chosen race, and a people for God's own possession. The terms nation and race both point to a people with a common heritage and descent. We belong somewhere on the same family tree. We have a common history that we share. Many nations in the Middle East were defined not geographically, but in terms of their tribal descent. Edom was the nation made up of the descendants of Esau. The Ammonites were descendants of Ben-Ami, one of the sons of Lot. And Israel was descended from Jacob, who was Israel. As Romans 4 tells us, our common family heritage is as adopted sons and daughters of Abraham and also of God himself through Jesus Christ. And we were chosen for that purpose, as God chose Abraham from the beginning. Apart from any more specific role that God has given us, he simply chose us because he wanted us. God has a gotcha day for each of us. When we were adopted into his family, and he, he's glad that we're his. Do you want the role that he's given you? Do you want to be high priest? Royal priest, member of his holy nation. You know, there are times when we don't. I know I didn't on Thursday. I was sick of the roles that he'd put me in, the stuff he'd give me to do. Uh-uh, I'd had it. And our kids have discovered something about getting roles that they didn't want when they were in the Biola Youth Theater. Both of them, together at different times, my, both of our two younger sons tried out for the role of, John, of disciple in the Godspell 
the play there. And they practiced and they worked and they really wanted to be a disciple because you see, the disciples all practiced together. They all rehearsed together so they could hang out with their friends who were other disciples in the same cast. And they really wanted this and they worked hard and they did their initial audition and they got called back and said, all right, good, we got called back so that means we're being considered among the few. And they did their darndest at the callbacks and then both of them got the phone calls at, different, at their times and said, congratulations, you are John the Baptist. And both of them, it's interesting how they both got that role. Both of them said, uh, well, thanks, I guess. Because they hadn't wanted to be John the Baptist. John the Baptist didn't rehearse with the rest of the disciples in the same way. He didn't have a role that carried through the whole whole production gods, but he was only there for the first few minutes and then he became an ordinary hanger-on after that. John the Baptist was not the role that they had in their hearts signed up for and they were not happy with it. Have you been signed up for a role by God that you're not happy with? Have you tried and thought that you were going to get this position and end up looking at the place that he's put you and said, thanks God? I don't, but no thanks. I'm at this place in the building next to these people who I didn't choose to hang out with. And by the way, they may not have chosen to hang out with you either, so it's fair. Um, and with this structure and this thing, and it, it, God, I just didn't choose this. This isn't my doing. I'm not interested, and I'd rather opt out, thank you. And God says no. And my sons wanted to opt out too. But after swallowing deep, they said, okay, we'll do it. And you know something that was good for them? And they discovered in the end that John the Baptist played a really important role as he opened the performance and he set the table for all that was going to happen afterwards and ushered in the story. And they learned something firsthand about what John had said when it said, he must increase, Jesus and I must decrease. And they learned what that meant in real life. And they grew through it. And you know something? I think it's true of the roles that we've been given that we don't want that they are still good roles for us, but not in the ways that we would have hoped for, not in the thing we signed up for, not the plans that we had, but they are good, and God's working good in them, and I hope that you'll be able to, learn, give, to see that goodness over time, that God will give you the grace to recognize that this is not wasted time and energy in the place where he's put you, that there is fruit to be seen and good to be accomplished, and he's pleased with it, because he is, and he's gonna make good out of it one day. Not only does he have a place for us and a role for us, but he has a purpose for us. We are being built into a spiritual house and we are being formed into a holy priesthood and a holy nation and God's chosen people for his own possession for a purpose. A couple of them, in fact, that we're told about. The first one we see in verse 5 where it says that we are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As we saw when we looked at the role of the priesthood, their job was to perform the tasks required to maintain the relationship between God and his people. And one of the chief among those tasks was to offer sacrifices. As there were tasks associated with repairing a breach in the relationship with God, so there were sacrifices intended for the same purpose, including sin offerings and guilt offerings. However, in this spiritual house, the one that we are being formed into, the relationship between God and man has already been repaired once and for all by the sacrifice of our high priest, Christ Jesus. And there's nothing left for us to add to that work. It's finished. 
But there is something else for us to do. For we also can do, give offerings when the relationship is healthy. Offerings that express our gratitude for all the blessings that God has given us. These gifts, as we have seen, are pleasing to God, and there will be an endless opportunity to give them. In Psalm 50, we saw that a sacrifice of thanksgiving was gladly received by God as a way of honoring Him. In Romans 12:1, Paul appeals to us by the mercies of God to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. And in Hebrews 13, 15 through 16, it urges us to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So, thanksgiving, praise, sharing of what we have, and even presenting our entire lives before God for His service are appropriate sacrifices to God, not as a way of repairing a broken relationship, of somehow making things right, of somehow earning our way into right relationship with God. That job's been done. And we are not priests for that purpose any longer. But we give these offerings as an outflow of gratitude to, of the joy and the blessing that he's poured out in us. So we give our lives. And this is our joyful task as a holy priesthood to do these things on a continual basis. We find the other purpose that Paul identifies for God's people in verse 9 where we read that we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This may sound like vanity on God's part, as though he were a child, demanding that people tell him how wonderful he is. But it is not that at all. Rather, it is a sign of our moral and spiritual health that we proclaim his excellencies. For us to see something totally awesome and not to react with applause would probably be an indication of a problem in our lives. Perhaps that we were either ignorant of what we were seeing or that we'd become jaded and unable to be impressed. Last night I saw on Facebook a video clip that Walt Hera, the worship pastor for La Mirada, posted an absolutely awesome performance of a movement of Vivaldi's Four Seasons that was performed on an accordion. As was my take, too, that laughter. I thought to myself the same thing. This is, can't be real. This cannot be real. You wouldn't expect something, from an amazing, uh, uh, something amazing from an accordion, but I tell you, it was an absolutely stunning performance. Uh, yeah, I won't. I won't. But it was a performance worthy of any concert hall. I swear the guy held a pipe organ in his hand. And it sounded absolutely phenomenal. He did amazing things with that instrument. And first thing I did, even before it was over, is I went and showed it to my son and his friends who were there that night, because I, I just had to share this kind of thing. And I said, look, look, listen to this. You've got to see what this guy's doing. And they were impressed. They were just, wow. And, and then, you know, we watched the video together. And when the performance was over, the audience, the camera panned over the audience a little bit. And there you saw the people politely clapping. And I thought to myself, there's something wrong here. There's something fundamentally wrong. And the person, one of the posters on that post commented and caught my sense where they said, I don't think that the audience is half as enthusiastic as it should be. They should have been on their feet in a standing ovation with shouts of appreciation. To sit there quietly applauding 
something phenomenal has just happened is either it seemed like it was either an indication that they had no clue of what they were seeing, they were just ignorant of it, or that they were jaded and could not be moved by any excellence anymore. You know, social media is filled with the praise of cute babies, wonderful recipes, good friends, amazing shots by Stephen Curry, and all kinds of other good things. Because that's what people do when they encounter good things. They praise them, and they tell their friends about them. Did you see that? Can you believe what she just did? Isn't that amazing? The stadium erupts with the amazing play. The audience leaps to its feet after a wonderful performance. We applaud. We celebrate. We join together to proclaim the excellencies of the wonderful thing that we just saw, heard, tasted, or otherwise experienced. To sit there quietly would be wrong. Either pitiable ignorance, or sinful pride, or regrettable jadedness, or something is wrong here. It's not right when that happens. To proclaim the excellencies of that which is truly excellent is a sign of spiritual health and discernment. You know, we too are seeing an absolutely stunning performance, magnificent beyond all comprehension, of God's saving work performed on our behalf in Christ Jesus. Each one of us is a trophy of His grace as Jesus left His Father's glory to become like us, die for us, though we were His enemies, pay the price for our uncountable sins, overcome death to destroy its power over us, rise to glorious new life, and make a way to follow Him into the presence of God to enjoy delights beyond our imagining for all eternity. The only reason we are not constantly applauding His marvelous work is, and telling others about it is that our sin nature blinds us to the magnificence of what God is doing and muzzles us so we don't tell others about it. But when God completes His work in us and we are in His presence in heaven, then we will see the awesomeness of what He has done and all heaven will ring with the praises of His people. How about now though? How about this moment? Are we seeing the awesomeness of his work maybe a little bit? Are we catching a glimpse of the majesty? Are we maybe a little bit grateful for the good he's done? And if so, can we give the praises and the sacrifices and the service and all the other things that, that God intends should flow out of that? I know I wasn't on Thursday night Blind, deaf, stupid, you name it. I, I had no glimpse of that at all in my heart, and some of us may not have any better luck today with seeing what's going on, and I hope that that changes. I hope that the worship, that the fellowship, that just the reminders actually change our hearts and open us to see what it is he's done. That we recognize that, that we are put in a magnificent, unbelievably glorious place, and we have the privilege of serving God in that place and to enjoy His presence and His goodness forever. I hope you see it. I hope something that was done here today awakens your heart again to that and that you can rejoice in it. But some of you may be thinking that you're too small, too needy, 
to carry too much baggage in the form of past sins to really be able to participate in this joy. The judgments of other people or your own self-assessment say that you'll never find a place in God's spiritual house, that you'll never be given a role among his people, or if you're given a purpose, that you will be unable to fulfill it. And Peter answers you in this passage and tells you simply and bluntly in a way, you're wrong. You're wrong. That's good news. Have you ever been rejected by people? So was Jesus. Jesus was judged by the spiritual leaders and found wanting. He was despised, as Isaiah 53 reads, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was born of a poor family. People had doubts about his parentage. He had no certificate from a leading rabbi and had offended all the leading religious parties of the day by violating long-established orthodoxies and claiming rights that only God had. He insulted the religious leaders and hung out with lowlifes like tax collectors and prostitutes. So it was entirely to be expected that the religious leaders would despise him and consign him to a brutal and ignominious death, one which scripture explicitly describes as cursed. Though he was rejected by the authorities in about as emphatic a way as anybody can be rejected, Jesus was chosen of God and precious to him. And you know something? If you are in Christ, you are chosen and precious as well. Are you a nobody? Are you not part of any community? Are you isolated, alone, insignificant? So is Abraham. He was called by God to leave his family and all that was familiar to him and travel to an unknown destination. No one knew him there. He had no holdings, no property, no land, no place in that country. There was no family or friends to welcome him. But God had chosen Abraham and God made him into a great nation. And in Christ, God has chosen you too and made you part of a holy nation, a people of his own possession. And you matter. Once you were not part of God's community, not part of a people, but in Christ you are now one of God's people. Or are you too dirty for God to want? Do your sins dog your heels? Do past evils that you have done haunt your life or with present consequences? Or do you continue to struggle with temptations and weakness? Look at Peter, the author of this letter, who failed to walk with God, broke his promises, and betrayed and abandoned his Lord all in one night. Look at Paul, who persecuted the church and secured the death or imprisonment of many believers. Look at David, who stole a loyal soldier's wife and arranged his death to cover his tracks. Look at almost any significant person in the Bible, and you'll find sins, sometimes gruesome ones, that by any reasonable assessment would disqualify them from entering the presence of God. Yet in Christ they received mercy. Regardless of the sins you have committed, if you have committed your life to Christ, you also have received mercy. And you too are one of the people God has chosen and set aside for his own possession. God builds his spiritual house and forms his holy priesthood not out of the best and brightest 
of society, not out of the people that have it all together, not out of the people who get prestige and or notoriety in the press and have got everything that anybody could ever want. No, he doesn't choose those people. He chooses the rejects. He chooses the people that are alone. He chooses the people that are broken. Out of such people, he builds a house. He chooses the people that were rejected. He knits into families those who were alone, into communities. And he forgives those who are broken and sinners and desperately needed. It is not our status or connections or virtue that secure for us a place in God's house as a member of his chosen race. It is our attitude towards Jesus Christ. If we believe in him and trust in his provision for us, then we have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light and we will be part of his spiritual house and given the joyful responsibility of proclaiming his excellencies. But if we don't, believe in Jesus, but despise and reject him. We have rejected the one whom John told us is the light of the world. And if we reject the world's light, then we must remain in darkness. And if we have not been called out of darkness, we cannot help but stumble over the cornerstone that God has chosen, and we will stumble to our own destruction. So where are you? Have you responded to God's wonderful plan for your life? Or are you stumbling over Jesus? Is there something about him that you just don't get or just can't accept? Are his claims to be unique causing you problems because he really doesn't seem to, be, to you to be any different from the founders of other religions? Are his miracles a stumbling block because it's impossible to believe in miracles in this day and age? Or are his moral claims a problem because they're intolerant and they cause pain for people? And I urge you to look again. Talk with me after the service or with one of the other elders or ushers or someone near you who's a part of this church. Let's discuss these issues and examine the testimony of the Bible together and see if we can help you to find answers to your objections so that you can set them aside and put your faith in Jesus as he draws you into his marvelous light. Or are you a believer in Jesus who feels that you've been disqualified from the purposes that he has for you? Let's talk. If God is satisfied with you in Christ, we need to find out why you can't accept his judgment. Whatever it is that you feel is restraining you from entering into God's purposes is a lie from the devil. And we'd love to help you silence the devil's voice and believe the God who welcomes you into his spiritual house and his holy priesthood. Or are you a believer who is secure in your place in God's spiritual house and your roles as a member of God's priesthood and chosen people, but you're not performing the functions he intends of offering the spiritual sacrifices and proclaiming his excellencies? Are you receiving his blessings, but not returning the thanks that he desires in sacrifice and praise? N not proclaiming his excellencies to others who should hear. We've explored reasons why this might be so. You could be ignorant of the blessings God has imparted to you. Or you could be jaded. You've heard the story so many times. You grew up in the church. You've been there since childhood. It's over again. Oh, yeah, that. And it's lost its impact. 
Or you could be too proud to admit that you're impressed by what God has done. You could be like me, resentful of the things that he's put you in that Thursday night as I was, and you could simply say, God, I am not interested in, at that moment, doing what you want me to do. I've had it. There are other reasons, too. You could feel insecure, not know what to say. Or you could realize that there might be costs involved in giving yourself so completely to God. I mean, a living sacrifice, your whole bodies, this is big. It has to be taken seriously. Whatever the reason, it's not reason enough to keep you from doing the very thing that God wants from you in return for all the good that he has done for you. Turn again to God and reflect again on what he has done for you and ask for his help in offering spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to him and proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And if you're doing all these things, if God has put you in a place where you are fulfilling that role, at least in a little way, in the way that he has called you to, praise God. May you know the joy of being able to please him with the gifts that you're giving in return for what he has done for you. And may you excel still more. We need lots of people like you. We need people who have laid down their lives as sacrifices and are serving faithfully and giving joyfully and people who are telling others about the excellencies that are in Jesus. We need many more of them, all of them. May your numbers increase for the glory of God. So let's take a few minutes now before the Lord. Consider where you are and ask him for his help in doing what he calls you to. And if the Lord leads, and I hope he does, and you're called to speak out before us and proclaim uh, before uh, this congregation the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness, then do it. Don't be bashful. Tell us something of one, what he's done gratefully. Let us hear it that we might praise God together with you. So let's pray together. Father, you are great. You are holy. You are merciful. You are compassionate to people who don't deserve any part of it. You laid down your life in your son for us. You took upon yourself the pain and the burden of all of our sins, paid the price for them, and you made for us who were your enemies not merely a place to return to from which we'd fallen, but a place that surpasses anything that Adam and Eve ever knew. Lord, you are magnificent and we are grateful, grateful people. At least we want to be. But we lose sight. We get distracted. The things close at hand block us out. And we struggle to remember, struggle to celebrate, struggle to give praise. Lord, we are a broken people, and I think sometimes that the angels must look on and wonder that you have chosen us of all people to make a house for yourself. you got to be thinking, what? Those people? A house for you? Couldn't it have been an archangel or somebody who, who actually obeyed your word? But you've chosen us. Father, we don't quite believe it. 
We don't quite understand it. And to our shame, sometimes we don't want it. Lord, forgive us. Work in our hearts. Help us to know what it is you've done. To receive it with gratitude. And to share it with joy. Because that's the high purpose that you've called us to. And there is nothing that pleases you more. May you be glorified in our lives by what we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen.